this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. What could she say for herself? My husband ordered me to help kill him, so I did. Her defense sounded weak and bizarre. Even Wesley wouldn't have believed her if he hadn't done what he did. The truth was absurd. Justine hadn't told a soul, definitely not her kids, not even Bev. It made more sense to create a new truth. A few weeks after Wesley's funeral, Justine started stealing from the funerals of dead folks. Some she knew, but mostly those she didn't. Not to be sordid or cruel, but because she wanted to recreate her past with pieces of truths that came from other people's past. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to author Lindsay Ellis about her debut novel, Bone Broth. Set in 2015, a politically anxious time in the suburbs of St. Louis in the years following the Ferguson uprising. Ellis portrays a woman and her three adult children coming to grips with the death of their autocratic father and the unraveling of family secrets. Justine, the mother, struggles with burying the past and hiding the present. Her eldest daughter is trying to create a museum to honor the Black struggle for equality. Her second daughter is grieving the loss of her only child. And her son is coming to terms with his homosexuality and struggling to define himself. But no matter how far each of them venture, Justine somehow pulls them back into her loving orbit. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Billy. Thanks for having me. So how did you come to write Bone Broth? Well, I was actually living in um, the Bay Area, Oakland, California, when the idea popped in my head. It was my first year of grad school uh, there, and I was I was coming there from St. Louis, and this was like 2005. And I just had, you know, this idea, I just saw this woman, an older woman, um, and that opening scene in Bone Broth, which I won't really elaborate on, but I will say that um, it did start like as, you know, the opening scene with that. Um, and, and those are the only two concepts I had. And, you know, I just I worked on it. And, I you know, of course, it went through many drafts, as, as you know, books do. 
Um, and I just stuck with it. I, sometimes it, I, you know, I had to put it down to work and support myself. And, you know, so it got shelved sometime, but I always came back to it because I knew I wanted to finish it eventually. And that's what I did. And yeah, here it is. Ah, it's a beautiful story. What was happening in the city and suburbs of St. Louis in 2015 when Bone Breath is set? And can you remind listeners why the murder of Michael Brown led to such serious protests? Yeah, so that was, you know, uh, as you can imagine, it was just a very traumatic time, a very chaotic time in uh, St. Louis. We were just dealing with the the murder of Michael Brown in uh, August, the exact date, I'll never forget the date, August 9th, 2014. And um, things just quickly spiraled out of control. It was just, oh my goodness, on all across the country, nobody, I, I, I don't think anybody was expecting it to be, you know, just that massive, like to create that, a, a massive movement, Black Lives Matter, and just people just outraged, you know, this has not been the first time that it's happened, obviously, um, but the idea it happened in Ferguson, this, this, you know, suburb of St. Louis, and a lot had been going on, you know, um, and when this happened, it just it just kind of just, you know, brought things to a head and um, just totally, you know, brought a lot of things to the forefront that needed to be addressed that um, we've seen, you know, in, in other cases that, you know, we're almost to the point of addressing it, but it never gets totally addressed. So there was just this whole massive eruption of um you know, this outrage and, you know, people just being mad and feeling helpless. And um, that's kind of where bone broth, uh, the backdrop of bone broth. Um, And, you know, the irony of it is Justine, the main character, uh, without giving too much of the way, she is a a former, you know, activist. uh, What I like to call a closeted former activist Uh because she did not want anybody to know that. Um, particularly her kids. This was just something, you know, she had kind of grown out of and she was trying to move on with her life and raise her family, you know, just quietly in the suburbs. Um, Things were changing all around her. And she has this, you know, she's a widow now, but she had this husband that was very domineering. Um, So she was just trying to get away from that. But, you know, her background in activism and civil rights is, you know, basically coming, you know, to a head in her memory during this time because, you know, she's got all this stuff going on around her. So where she might not want to remember, she's forced to remember things. And that's kind of how it takes off. So Justine and her friend, her best friend Bev, grew up in an inner city housing project in St. Louis. Can you describe the paths they took and how they ended up where they are now? Yeah, so Pruitt Igo was was in real life. It, it was a housing project, one of the first in in the country uh, that was um, built for. It wasn't built as you know, just to be you know, particularly for Black people. It was you know, it was in it was they had a, a building for white people and they had a building for you know Black people when they first they first built it. And it was actually known as the you know it was supposed to be very swanky you know to be. A housing project. It was something very new, but it was supposed to be very, you know, nice and plush. People actually called it um, the poor man's penthouse. Um, unfortunately, this, you know, around the time of white flight, 
that's kind of took hold of the city. And, you know, there was this huge economic decline in St. Louis, as there were with other cities, Detroit, and, you know, so many others in uh, in the country. And during that time, uh, there happened, you know, there was white flight. So white people were moving out. They were moving further to the suburbs. Um, so basically, Justine, Bev, and Leslie, her husband, or, you know, her um, her deceased husband, they all grew up. And Bev's husband, I should mention, uh, Beans, they all grew up um, basically in Pruitt-Igo. And so they have, you know, fond memories, and then they have not so fond memories about what it was like growing up. And they basically end up getting away from that before um, the inevitable raising of that project, which really did take place on national TV. Mm. Um, Lindsay, this whole book felt to me like a love song to your city, to St. Louis, in spite of all its flaws and the problems and Ferguson uprising and the police, it really, I got the feeling that you love the place. Can you say more? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, you, I think you nailed it. It, it, I never looked at it that way as a love song to St. Louis, but if I I had to describe it anyway, I think that would be the closest that I could come to, you know, which closest that I could come to it was actually what you said. Um, like you said, it, it's there's a lot of flaws. There's, you know, but there's so much richness here. There's so much happiness. There's the people, you know, just the history here. I mean, I that's just barely scratching the surface, you know, what what I wrote, the, the little sector, the little piece of history that I decided to focus on in this book. Um, I mean, we could, we could talk, I could go on for hours about just, you know, um, the people in the community here and just everybody that I feel I, you know, I wanted to pay homage, you know, homage to in, in this book and um, the leaders and the, the educators, the people I grew up with in the church. And, you know, I always say Justine is like an amalgamation of uh, the female or the women that I grew up with, um, be it aunties, you know, uh, godmothers, uh, ushers in the church, you know, it's, it's just a, a lot of, she represents a lot of people. And um, that's one thing I wanted to do was kind of personify St. Louis and make make the city an actual character in the book. Yeah. And like Raina, uh, Justine's oldest daughter, you also came home from the West Coast, yes. right? <laughs> yes. So Justine, um, since I'm older than Justine, I felt a little bit of ageism in her friend Bev wanting her to attend these elder meetings. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about why it was so important to Bev that Justine come with her? Yeah, she was, you know, Bev is the, you know, the kind of person I, I, I always like to say there's everybody has a friend like Bev, regardless of age or anything. She kind of comes off as, you know, she likes to pry a little bit, but you you can tell she's doing it from, she's coming from a place of love. She just doesn't, you know, that's just her way, the way she does stuff. And she does, she's very pushy. She kind of pushes Justine to come along with her thinking this will help, you know, um, bring her Justine out of her grief since, you know, she's like this grieving widow now trying to get over what's, you know, her or trying to accept the fact that Wesley, her husband is no longer, you know, in her life or, you know, her or her kids' lives. And so um, Bev kind of pushes her to start going to these elder uh, meetings with her, you know, hoping that it will it will be helpful and that she can, you know, kind of talk about her grief. And uh, 
Um, I won't really go into everything that happens or, you know, kind of tell all of that, but it, it, it does, it, there are some twists and turns and it, uh, Justine finds out that, you know, it's, there's a lot of unexpected um, pleasure, I guess, out of these meetings in ways she never would have thought. <laughs> so I'll leave yeah, it at that. That's a, good way, yeah, that's a good way to say it. Justine had a complicated marriage. Why did she tolerate Wesley's behavior, especially when he bought the house next door and moved into it? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. Like that's, uh, man, I would say it, it probably was, you know, I wanted to show, you know, that she had so, you know, despite her flaws, because Justine is very flawed. Um, but despite this, I, I just wanted to show her deep capacity for love for people that, you know, we might consider, you know, loveless or, you know, you know, hey, why are you wasting your time with this guy? You know, she actually was, you know, she tried to make it work. She tried to, you know, make a family with this guy who, in essence, I mean, was really another one of, besides Bev, that was another one of her best friend, her childhood friend. You know, they'd all grown up together and, you know, Wesley was basically all she knew. So she, for better or worse, you know, she was going to try to make it work. Um, even if she had to give up a part of herself, which inevitably she did. Yeah. Why does Raina, Justine's eldest daughter, think that Justine is paranoid? And why is Raina so angry? Mm. Why is she so angry at her mother? She, Raina, <laughs> Raina is a, Raina is a stickler for, uh, in her way of just being, you know, upfront and just, you know, coming with the truth of things. And she doesn't like the fact that Justine is like, has hidden this from her specifically because she basically followed, followed in her mother's footsteps without knowing it. You know, she basically, and she was ridiculed for it, you know, because Justine didn't follow that path. And, you know, she kind of teases or, well, criticizes Raina for the path that she took, you know, in terms of activism and, you know, social justice. And um, Raina resents that because it's like, well, you criticize all of this. And then I found out that, you know, you you had this whole life before, you know, but, uh, you know, before you decided to, you know, settle down and raise a family. So that's where the anger with um, Raina comes from. And of course, it's different her and her siblings take, you know, they react to Justine's past very differently. But, in, you know, they, they try to work around that. But, you know, they're all different. They're all different people, all different personalities, different professions. I think you did a really wonderful job of showing different parent parental relationship with each, each adult child. They really are specific. But they all love her in their own ways, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Lois, a successful realtor, is livid about white flight, the dis this disintegrating neighborhood, and the violent loss of her only child. Here's what I want to know. Will she be able to make a success of her life? That is a great question. That's something that um, I think with Lois, she had this idea which so many of us do. Lois, to me, represents probably, the, to me, the most human character in the book besides Justine, because she represents, you know, our, all of our expectations, right? We all have these expectations for ourselves and, you know, the people that we love. And so much of that, you know, ends up being snatched from her, 
particularly with, you know, when her, her son physically is snatched from her. Um, and so she's forced to kind of learn how to rebuild, you know, and the way she's learning, the way she's going to have to rebuild is going to be, you know, an unconventional approach. And I'll, I'll leave that at that. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, she'll have like yeah. some kind of, un- not the success she thought she would have, but it's an unconventional approach to, you know, how she's going to live. Yeah. Um, he's in mourning for his first love. And Theo is still battling with his homosexuality, even to the point of marrying a, wi- a woman. Justine says that he was always different. Um, he's, he's a really interesting character. Can you describe his struggles? Yeah, I mean, he's everybody in this story has an identity crisis in some type of way. And with Theo, that's, that's just what it is, and, um, a crisis with coming to terms with his own sexuality. Um, and I mean, I've, I can speak personally, I've known a lot of, you know, I've known men who, you know, have been so-called on the down low and I'm sure a lot of people have, and it's just something that I've, you know, it's, it's real in our communities and it's something, you know, because of that, I wanted to explore it, you know, to kind of humanize, you know, that struggle. And I, I hope, you know, that I was able to, you know, somewhat do that, but, that's where Theo's at. He's, you know, he's this politician, up and coming politician. Um, he knows what he likes. He definitely knows what he likes in terms of uh, sexuality and relationships, but he doesn't want anybody to know that. And just him grappling with that is, you know, something that's literally eating at him. Um, and again, he's he's got a lot of um, fessing up to do within within himself and his success like Lois is not, you know, a conventional path, not the conventional path that he thought it would be. But also he's a politician and it was before Pete Buttigieg, like that, mm-hmm. the society, it wasn't clear that society maybe, first of all, national society, but St. Louis, that uh, the community would be ready for it. And as a politician, it's understandable, but you would hope that here it is 2015, just a few years ago, you, we would have, hoped that he would already, that, that that would already be no longer a problem. Right. Right. But it, it wasn't the case. Nope. <laughs> it, it's still not the case. It's 2022. Exactly. It, it's better, but it's, you know, we have a way to go. Yeah, um, your language is rich and nuanced. One of my favorite things that Justine does is call her own daughter a heifer. <laughs> I laughed out loud. The question is, why does Justine have so few boundaries with her children? My kids would hang up the phone on me if I spoke to them that way. That is, yeah, that's, I don't, I could, I wish I could answer that. Like, it's just, their their family is just, this family in this book is just totally all in with each other for, for good or for bad. I mean, they just... You wonder that, and it's just like, especially with Lois. Like, I feel like she kind of pokes at Lois because she knows Lois is this the dutiful daughter, do anything she says, and um, and then you know Lois eventually starts sticking up for herself. But I mean, and then you have Brana, the 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 brash one, who's you know rebellious, and and Theo's just in his own little world. So yeah, it does make you wonder, like why. <laughs> Why are they putting up with this, or why is she putting up with them? And it's it's almost it's again it's I guess that unconditional love, you know, regardless of whatever, you know, we might not like each other, but we're still family. 
Um, and we all we got. <laughs> the same. That's, that's right. Say. That's right. That's so true. Um, he, there were uh, there's this interesting like inner circle of everybody's related to each. Some everybody has a connection, and um, Lois's the father of Lois's child is related to Theo's first love. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that whole relationship for a bit? Yes. So the father of Lois's. Uh, child or the slain son is uh, Ahmad, which is the brother, like you said, of Theo's first love, which is Pete. So, and Pete, you know, Pete is murdered. I'll leave it at that. He's no longer with us. Um, And so, yeah, it is. Everybody's kind of, you know, everybody knows everybody. And that's kind of like how St. Louis is. And in, a, in ways, that's kind of how Oakland is. Oakland, to me, felt like when I first moved to Oakland, it felt a lot like St. Louis in that way. Like it was it was a whole city, a metropolis, but you could just tell everybody knows somebody who knows somebody that you know. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's exactly how St. Louis is and feels. And a lot of cities like are like that. And um, so I kind of just wanted to show that closeness. Um, and it is very complex because, you know, when one person's not speaking to one person, like, you know, uh, Lois and Ahmad, they lose touch for a long time. And when they lose touch, you know, Theo was Ahmad's best friend, you know, even though his brother, you know, him, Ahmad's brother and Theo had this forbidden relationship when they were in high school that, you know, he was still best friends with Ahmad, Lois's ex-partner. So mm-hmm. it's very complicated. And, 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 you know, when they fall out, Lois and Ahmad, and they lose touch, you know, even before the death of their only child, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on the relationship between him and Ahmad, between Theo and Ahmad. So there's a lot going on there. And I I try, you know, my best to separate it, but I feel like that just speaks so much to real life because you, you, in ways you do have those connections and it's very complicated. I'm wondering if anybody in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, saw themselves in this book. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've talked to people, you know, cl- people close to me, family or, you know, close friends. And, you know, they've said that or they, they've asked me, come and say, were you talking about me? Or were you talking about so-and-so in this book? Because this sounds like so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm like, <laughs> it's like, this is pure fiction. I will say like a lot of stuff, you know, might be inspired by different relationships, but no, this is not based, none of these characters are based off of one particular person. Um, the only thing that speaks truth, you know, in terms of what I was trying to get at was the character of St. Louis as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think you did it. It's really a, a lovely novel. Congratulations you. for, you know, for your first one. Thank it's you. really beautiful. So what are you working on next, Lindsay? Well, I am working on a collection of short stories and they all are, uh, I will say it's like a horror short story collection so uh it's there's oh. a, and it's like a psych, most mostly psychological uh, horror um but yeah there's there's a lot going on there and i'll kind of just leave it at that but i i'm having a lot of fun with it a lot i'm a i'm a horror fan to my heart i i love horror movies and i've loved them since i was a kid 
Ooh, so that sounds intriguing. Keep me posted. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your book. Thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for having me, Lee. Have a good one. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Lindsay Ellis, author of Bone Broth. Thanks for listening. And may you always be immersed in a juicy novel.